Hello and welcome to the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden, Publications Editor for the International Horn Society and your host. My special guest today is Dr. John Erickson, Professor of Horn at Arizona State University and an acknowledged uh, expert on many things related to horn playing and horn pedagogy. Uh, He's probably most well known as one of the co-founders of Horn Matters, the online magazine dedicated to uh, horn playing and horn teaching. John and I go back many, many years to uh, my college uh, days when I was a student at the Brevard Music Center. I had the opportunity to work with him, Uh, and since then he's been a trusted friend, colleague, and mentor in a lot of ways to me during my career. Uh, The topic of our discussion today was uh, innovation in horn teaching. And in it, uh, we consider a number of things that we kind of take to be standard in in the field of horn pedagogy, uh, and we talk about why it might be good to reconsider them from time to time. So I think it's a fascinating conversation, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. One point of interest in our conversation is that I was having some connection troubles early in the in the interview, and unfortunately, I had to ditch some of that audio. The, the quality was just too degraded for it to actually uh, be salvageable. And uh, what happens is um, the conversation is going to pick up at a certain point after I had to cut that audio when we're talking about uh, one of John's many publications, his uh, modern preparatory etudes for the horn. Um, I don't think you'll have any trouble picking up the thread of that conversation, but I just wanted to let you know what's going on there. And if you haven't done so already, I hope you will uh, be sure to read the February 2021 issue of The Horn Call, either in print or digital format. Uh, John has a very nice article in there about natural horn playing, um, during the Baroque era, and uh, of course, lots of other great content, both online and in print. So without further delay, here is my conversation with John Erickson. I'm so excited for uh, my guest today, Dr. John Erickson from Arizona State University. Uh, John, we've known each other a long time. You've always been a great teacher and mentor to me and uh, a big influence on lots of horn students um, all all over the place. So I'm excited to have you on the podcast today. So we're going to be talking about innovation in horn teaching and performance, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, this is a time frame where we can really especially with, you know, we've just been through this COVID thing for a while and it's a good time to just kind of rethink a lot of stuff. I think there's, there's definitely horn teaching a lot of the materials we use. I mean, it's kind of a crime almost that we use so much 19th century materials. So this is a, a topic I've been uh, kind of the uh, part of, we were talking before the podcast, I believe that I had just given a presentation uh, to our brass area here at ASU about conventional wisdom and how that relates to, you know, our thinking and one of the, my initial points was about how we have, as teachers and as students, we have like toolboxes. I use the mm-hmm. analogy toolboxes. And, and a student starts out with a pretty small toolbox. And it's probably full of sort of conventional wisdom stuff you picked up from your band directors and people like that. So part of uh, being an effective teacher is developing a larger toolbox of, of materials you can use, uh, ideas, um, better understanding of different players' mechanics. There's more than one way to play. Um, a lot of things like that. 
are are kind of big elements of what makes uh, teaching more effective. If you can, is you have more things. I mean, there's some teachers that are are well known, but they probably have, in truth, the kind of small toolboxes. Like they really know one particular type of teaching very well, um, and that is part of what I think drives like the. I mean, I I use Coprosh, but some of the teachers that really, really use Coprosh, I think that's kind of the only material they really know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they maybe need to just kind of like take a second and go like, you know, there are other materials I could cover this stuff with that are not published in, you know, the 18 uh, whatevers. Right, that, right. That you, can, you can use. No, and I, I think, you know, going back to your uh, preparatory etudes book, a modern preparatory etudes book, you mentioned the Vern Reynolds etudes, but your 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 book seems like it's it's a welcome addition because, as you said, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't get nearly as difficult as the Reynolds etudes, but it does deal with sort of odd meters and unusual intervals, and uh, mm -hmm. you know maybe even venturing into sort of uh, less than tonal areas. Um, could you talk a little bit about? how you, I mean, I, I'd never known you were a composer, but they're, 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 they're but the, the <laughs> I, didn't, are, I didn't know either really. Well, but the um, etudes are but, well done. I mean, you know, I've, I've been using them uh, here and there with some students of mine and, and mm -hmm. been getting good response. So how, how on earth did you come up with these things? Yeah. Well, there's kind of a story there too. For I mean, they, I sort of dabbled with composing when I was a student. I think a lot of students do. And I had like materials around, so some of the etudes are sort of based on materials drawn out of duets and things that I wrote that weren't very good. Um, but I, I worked them into etude ideas. A lot of it was just little ideas would get in my mind and I would like want to write something on that idea. And then there's like Easter eggs all through the book for, for experienced horn teachers, like uh, temple markings that are like, there's one from the Schmutzig book, there's one from... Uh, you know, I got an Alapalaka and a Sarabond and, you know, mm -hmm. I just got, got things that are just sort of out of the box a little bit, but they entertained me and hopefully they entertained some teachers out there as well. Yeah. And there's, there's a couple of more extended uh, works uh, towards the end, right. That are sort of uh, loosely based on, on existing solo repertoire. Right. So I had an idea from, uh, I think it believes the Cugno etudes. He had like these review etudes at the end of sections that had like multiple it was, it was themes from the the group of etudes preceding it mm -hmm. so i had an idea to write something that resembled solo horn works although they're really kind of just um they're not really great works i don't think <laughs> but i think they'll be entertaining for like a studio class or something what i did was i used materials from all of the etudes spread out into four solo horn works which are loosely based on and patterned on famous uh, horn solo works. So mm -hmm. like the uh, uh, Persichetti Parabell becomes the Erickson allegory. Oh, I love so, it. So you've got like different uh, little things like that thrown in and, and they, they resemble them, you know, in general character section by section, but it's just materials from the etudes. So it can serve as a nice review for the book. I, I'm thinking, I'm imagining they might be a nice jury piece to do one of those mm -hmm. uh, if you've worked mm -hmm. through through the book, you know, just, I don't know. I'm imagining people can use it different ways. I'm not imagining they're going to be like, you know, American horn competition required etude numbers, you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't think they're going to be as good as uh, the Vern Reynolds etudes. He definitely was thinking some of them would be performed as solo horn works. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm more just like kind of ironically saying you can't, if you want to, but they're really just kind of review etude things, but they, I hope they're interesting enough. Well, and I think uh, because 
because of the level where they are, it, it gives the the player a chance to work out some of the things that they're going to need to be able to do anyway to perform the solo, the the unaccompanied works effectively, and then but maybe not have to deal with so many of the difficult things in the original works. But uh, I I like it. I love the way it's laid out. Uh, and this is you self published these right all of your materials. Well, I did. So there's a whole history there too because I I moved originally. I was publishing these things just here and having them printed locally. Mm -hmm. and eventually, partially, I just got tired of mailing things. I don't know. Mailing things is not really like my hobby, you know? <laughs> so eventually I switched it all to like an e-publication format that I directly sold, but they, it, it, that also became kind of a, I began to worry about uh, selling to Europe and things like that, which wasn't really legal mm -hmm. and stuff. So um, I retooled them into uh, 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 Kindle eBooks. Okay. And I sold them that way for a little while only. And then I finally figured out, like, you know, I could just retool these things a little bit and they would sell them as print publications anywhere in the world. And mm -hmm. it's actually a great system for, for the publisher. Um, I'll, you know, because the, this book, the, any of my books, they're available worldwide. Um, if you were in, say, England and you wanted to buy it, it's actually printed in England and you can get it very quickly. But they're printed on demand. So there's no inventory. And so that's kind of the genius of this whole Amazon printing model is that there is no inventory and they print it on demand and they ship it out very quickly. Okay. Um, so it's really a, uh, it's the sort of thing it's going to put, I mean, I'm sure they're hoping to put traditional publishing out of business because why wouldn't they want to do that? Cause they want mm -hmm. to make money. Um, it's definitely a, a model that's, that works nicely. Mm -hmm. So uh, from my end, I just, uh, I put it all up. I have to set it up a certain way. So I do wish, like, if you look at it, you'll think the music, I wish the music was just a little bigger, you know, but I have margins I have to deal with with uh. them and stuff. So it's just the way it is, but it's priced low enough. Hopefully nobody's really thinking like, like, I don't know, it's still, I think it's a good value and uh, you can buy it anywhere in the world easily, print yeah. or Kindle. Yeah, and the the print version I bought uh, was it came very quickly for one, and then it was uh, a very very good quality. I mean, it, I didn't notice mm -hmm. any you know corners being cut or anything like that. So uh, yeah. it's definitely definitely that, and and your other publications uh, are are worth a look. Um, okay, yeah, we were talking about conventional wisdom on topics. Uh, is there any one that comes to mind that you end up having to? Uh, to talk to students or, or, or other folks about more often than not one that kind of just keeps coming up for you. Oh yeah. Well, there's several really good ones there. Um, probably the biggest one is mouthpiece pressure. Okay. So, you know, Farkas, he did, I mean, I saw him give master classes. I took a few lessons with him back in the day mm -hmm. and he, the thing in the master classes, at least twice, I heard him say he regretted putting that picture of the horn on the shelf in mm -hmm. the Farkas book because of two reasons. One is it was sort of dangerous. You know, he's a little worried people might have a horn fall off, but more to the point, he says something along the lines of that basically was teaching you to use too little pressure. Like he, he in his later publications, he sort of walks it back a bit on the, the light mouthpiece pressure thing, not using too mm -hmm. much. But I think a lot of people, they just see that picture in the Farkas book and they think I've got to use light mouthpiece pressure or, or my head's going to explode or, or mm -hmm. whatever, you know? So I th it ends up that people, t I think, work too hard to use too little pressure. There's a, th but the conventional wisdom is that's the right answer. People will tell you, you, you know, don't use too heavy horn pressure, that's causing your problems. Mm -hmm. um, um, you really need to search for like a Goldilocks kind of a thing, not too much, 
not too little, but just mm -hmm. right. Another part of that too is mouthpiece pressure is going to vary not only by register, but it's going to vary by dynamic. Mm -hmm. And people don't really like see that, I think, as clearly as they need to. So you're playing like loud, you're just, you're going to need more mouthpiece pressure. It's part of keeping a seal with your horn and supporting your embouchure and stuff. So that's like one, the biggest topic area, I end up talking to people about it more than you would think you should, because it's just such a strong right answer. The correct answer is don't use too much mouthpiece pressure, but I, I think there's more of a problem people using too little or trying to use too little who are like good students instead of just trying to sound good. Right. What are, what are some of the symptoms of uh, a player, a student who might come in and, uh, you know, it probably doesn't take you very long to suss out, okay, this student clearly thinks they're using too much pressure and this is, this well, is why they're... <laughs> they'll tell you it. Okay. <laughs> you know? But also you can kind of hear it in the sound, especially as they go up in the range. If just a little more contact with the mouthpiece sometimes just clarifies everything. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's, it, it, it's sort of, but they're trying again, it's sort of a category of people. They, a famous person told them to do something mm -hmm. and I, I better do it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's an, another big topic related to that. I talk about actually probably a lot more in actual lessons is tonguing. And again, you don't want to talk about if somebody sounds good, you don't want to like make them overthink it. Right. right. You just right. want to sound good. You know, that's kind of the genius behind song and wind, you know. Right. But, but at the same time, some people don't sound good. So you have to like really drill down into it and stuff. And, and basically there's a, a strong thing that Farkas says is to never, ever tongue on the lips, period, basically, in the art mm. of horn playing, except unless you're doing sforzandos. Mm -hmm. It's like the only exception with the way he worded it in the book. And he walked that back a little bit in the later publications too. But if you look at like the MRI horn studies and stuff, I mean, clearly you can see the tongue is touching the lip on most any articulation that you can watch. Especially and, in the low range. Yeah. Especially in the low range. But as I was, I, I tell students, I actually had a, it was, I was here teaching at ASU. So I'd, I'd had a career and I was working my way along, but there was a, a point in time where I realized I wasn't tonguing the way I thought I was tonguing. Mm. So I thought I was doing something where my tongue was on the low notes. It was touching my lips, but as I went higher, it kind of arched up, which it does. But the front of my tongue, depending on the context, still was touching my lips. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of had a crisis about that because that's not what any book says. And it's not what I thought I was doing, but actually there are books that say things like that about, about that topic. I mean, the, the key quote I like to go back to is from the, the, uh, primary studies book by Anton Horner, which is okay. like 1939. So it's mm -hmm. a fairly old book, but he says in the little prefatory comment to, to t approach each note and tongue it as though you had a, a tiny hair on the end of your tongue. And you're just trying to push that out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. And if you tongue that way, and it's, it's really a very normal kind of tonguing really, but it sounds completely different than what your band director told you to tongue on your gums or whatever. Right. Yeah. And that sort of that sort of hits a, at one of those points that you mentioned going back to Farkas putting the horn on the shelf. I'm sure at one point that was a, a technique he used to try to get a student who was maybe using too much pressure to, to back off for that one time in that one place for that specific student. And so there's that danger of when we say things or put them in print or put them, you know, in any kind of 
uh, format where other people are going to see them for them to be taken out of context and kind of carried away. I mean, so many things a little bit is, is going to help maybe, but then if you do it all the time, it's, it's not good at all. Yeah. You're going to say different things to different students. Clearly mm -hmm. that's correct. And some people will need like the, the big adjustment in mm -hmm. a different direction. Uh, it's, it's all a process. It's kind of like, uh, I think of peeling layers on an onion, you know, you, 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 you have to kind of work your way down um, through, through layers of little sort of semi-problems and things. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the other, if I go to another topic, uh, and this is, uh, you know, I actually play, I've, I always mention this to you. I, mean, I actually played at Varkas' 50th wedding anniversary reception. I have no axe to grind against Varkas, but I'm going to bring one other negative Varkas point up here too, which is the, there's a section on mouthpieces in the uh, the thing where he has a thing that basically says something along the lines of no one change of mouthpiece is going to revolutionize your plane mm -hmm. and actually i would say definitely a mouthpiece change can revolutionize your plane it can change your life mm -hmm. it's just uh it can be a totally a thing that makes a lot of change and as i was, as i was teaching along for a long time i was sort of reluctant to experiment with mouthpieces too much mm -hmm. i was kind of like you know we, we got to just kind of work on the plane where it is and see what we can do but there was a point, especially mouthpieces have just been getting better and better in recent mm -hmm. years and, and easier to obtain better mouthpieces all the time. So probably working with some particular student and, and we we're working on articulations. And again, I, you work on articulations a lot with people because they do need to sound a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, there's a thing that uh, I go back to a quote. I studied with Vern Reynolds at Eastman and he was quotable, if nothing else, for sure mm -hmm. in, in my life. And one of the things he... He said was something along the lines because you never know how short some idiot i mean conductor <laughs> is going to ask you to play some passage <laughs> so you do have to work on those short articulations especially right oh yes and so i was working with somebody and finally i just handed them like a different mouthpiece mm -hmm. which i knew was a probably a better one and it just like instantly just like that their articulations were like a lot better and i was like mm -hmm. okay we gotta like explore this area a little more so um, over time, I've got like a kind of a narrow range of mouthpieces that not that I everybody's not everybody's going to play the same mouthpiece. People have different setups. But um, within a range, you can definitely improve some problems and things. And I think there's people using like, you know, the famous person's mouthpiece that's not really a suitable mouthpiece for them. Right. Uh, Might have been for that famous person. But you are you and they are they and, you know, kind of work your way along. And through the thing, one thing that's been particularly interesting, I, I've mentioned this in my, in the brass area presentation, people are always interested in this because until very recently, you really basically couldn't buy stainless steel mouthpieces. Like this is like, mm -hmm. you know, who, who had a stainless steel mouthpiece? Right. Because you couldn't really make them. Um, but now you can with right. CNC lays and stuff. So what I was saying to students, and they, I got a follow-up question about this, and I don't know the answer of why. I mean, this is like if you wanted to do some kind of extensive dissertation thing on it, be feel free. <laughs> um, but what I noticed in my own teaching here is about a third, if you have people use the same mouthpiece in brass or stainless steel, mm -hmm. let's say, which you can do with certain brands, which I won't name now, but the about a third of students definitely sound better on brass. Mm -hmm. About a third sound definitely better on nickel on a stainless steel, and about a third you can't even tell a difference. Mm -hmm. Just like so little difference that it's like yeah I can't really hear anything and it's I have no idea why. It's just a uh, yeah, mystery yeah. mystery of uh, some kind of thing with your oral cavity your horn I don't know. 
No, and it is interesting. There, there's, you know, I've, I've talked to various people, as I'm sure you have about, and people definitely have opinions on them, uh, and and and, and right. more often than not, they'll share them with me. So it's it's interesting. Different well, people have a different way of describing the what they hear. Yeah, yeah, and you could hear different things, but also there's, I mean, it for sure there's like a bias against stainless steel, also just because that's like you know the new kid or something. And it looks yes. different. Yeah, you can tell when somebody's got a stainless mouthpiece, it looks different. You know, uh, and, and I've always mentioned to people, I've always wondered, like, if some drum corps went to all stainless steel mouthpieces, like, what would that sound like? I don't know. Might, mm -hmm. be, might be kind of awesome. You know, and again, it's, mm -hmm. there's a point where we're kind of close to that tipping point. I think somebody's going to think of this and then and we'll see what it sounds like. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and going back to the, the, the thing about Philip Farkas, I mean, he is such a revered person in our community that it is, it's difficult to deal with that uh, as far as questioning some of the things he, he put out there. But I think, I think you're absolutely right to do that and you're doing it in a respectful way. I mean, at, at, at no point are we saying he was not the character that he was. He clearly was a, a major figure in, oh, yeah. in, in the development of the horn and furthering horn pedagogy. But, you know, to, to your point about mouthpieces, the, the variety of mouthpieces that he had available to him, even as like principal horn in the Chicago symphony or a professor at Indiana university was like minuscule compared yeah, well, to what, yeah. Well, there was a variety, but most of them were bad. That's also <laughs> a part of it, you know, because, but I mean, you can't really blame the people, you know, back in that day, but thousands of an inch just really matter mm -hmm. on mouthpieces. Well, um, I think I read somewhere that uh, this is apocryphal, but it, I think it, it hits on the point of there were a lot of players back in the day who kind of had to, to stop their careers early and they just figured, oh, their chops were blown or they were just getting old. But it, it may actually have been faulty equipment. They may have had a, a valve leaking that they just didn't know or the lead pipe was going and there was just not reliable, uh, you know, re repair stuff. Uh, to be found uh, where they were or they just didn't even think oh well this may be an equipment issue well, not to mention things like metal allergies mm -hmm, absolutely you know, which is a whole whole nother topic that is really worth i mean back in the day people just thought they lost their lip and that was kind of it mm -hmm. but but metal allergies were part of that issue as well um of people losing so-called losing their lip it was it, so in my own case i had a sort of a personal mouthpiece uh not fun time for a while where I had to quit using a gold plated rim and I had to switch to a, a plastic rim, which I liked. Okay. But it was better mm -hmm. than not playing, put it that way, mm -hmm. but not my favorite material. Like most people try plastic and they're kind of like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> you know? It's incredibly um, dry. It's yeah. Very it's dry feeling. But with uh, COVID coming around, I knew I should be able to play on H coat. I really should. Mm -hmm. and, but I just was so slick. I wasn't used to it. So, but once we hit like March, and I was just like practicing at home and teaching lessons. And I'm like, I can do this. Mm -hmm. you know? So I had to basically force myself to use a uh, H-coat rim for about two weeks. And I finally got used to it. And that's what I'm still playing on now. And I'm liking mm -hmm. it just fine. It feels nice, really. It mm -hmm. feels very nice. So I enjoyed it better than plastic. Mm -hmm. So, But this is like an option that was absolutely not available to somebody back in the you know 1950s even, let's say. I mean, they right. could get a plastic rim maybe, but with great difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that that's that's uh, I remember reading about that on Horn Matters. You were talking about going through that process of, of figuring out that was what was going on. Um, and, and that was new to me, the idea that one could develop a metal allergy. I guess I at some point I just assumed incorrectly that mm -hmm. you either are allergic or you're not. But that, yeah. that's clearly not the case. Yeah, apparently they can uh, progress through your life. Some of the some of the allergies and things. So 
Yeah, that's yeah. there's so much uh, research to be done, and I think I think that's good. I think it would be a terrible state of affairs if we all knew everything already. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, this is just such a golden age for equipment. You can buy some of the best horns like ever made. You can buy mm -hmm. some of the best mouthpieces ever made. Um, it's it's just a really really golden age for a lot of horn playing. So mm -hmm. there's a lot to celebrate there. That's for sure, in the in the horn world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, I wanted to ask you. I uh, we were talking about sort of the, the the overall topic of this podcast is is innovation in, in in horn teaching and performance. And it sounds like you're doing some pretty innovative things at ASU in the brass area, particularly with uh, regards to chamber music. Right. We had a, well, in the summer, so the summer of, you know, 2020 was the kind of COVID reset summer for a lot of people. So mm -hmm. um, all the brass faculty, we were around town um, because where else were we going to go, right? So we were here. So we were meeting once, twice a week and talking about things. And we came up with an idea to do an online brass chamber music program. Mm -hmm. So, but it was using a, a platform called BandLab as the basis, which our uh, band directors had found. So we recorded a project using that uh, to kind of test the, and this was all, the other part of the idea was these are materials that are available for free for students. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to like, go buy some expensive program or do something. So right. we, we uh, recorded um, a, a work in a band lab, and then we made a video of the work uh, as well, uh, which was the Paradiso, Cinema Paradiso, I think is what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, thing and and uh, Joe Burkstall put the video together using a, a, a video platform that's available for free for ASU students. Mm -hmm. So with that launched, and we knew it would work. So the next project was then working out a thing for students. So initially we had kind of a uh, just an idea to divide all the students into brass quintets mm -hmm. that we could, uh, and you could get almost all of them into brass quintets actually, and then. Um, we initially were just going to do some pieces, but then we had a big idea. So the big idea was to uh, focus on the music of BIPOC composers okay. uh, in arrangements by Luther Henderson, uh, which he had done for the Canadian Brass. So almost all the groups did those works because uh, there's a variety of uh, levels of those works as well. So that it, and it all came together. I mean, it was we didn't try to push people over the edge to make them like over busy, you know, because mm -hmm. everybody's like, you know, academic faculty seem to think people have unlimited time to write papers <laughs> or something, right? <laughs> uh, and, and I've been real careful about that with the horn teaching because of of everything. But the uh, the project came together really well. And uh, right now, as we we're talking right now, the students are finishing up. Some of the groups are finishing up videos. Not all the students are doing videos. Mm -hmm. uh, with them, but they're going to do videos similar to what we did as faculty uh, with them as well. So yeah, it's been a very interesting semester. So next semester, they're planning a similar project, mm -hmm. uh, but um, using uh, music of women composers. So it'll be brass quintets by women composers. No, that's... Composers. That's fantastic. And that's that, that strikes me that that's innovative on a number of levels. So they're using, they're having to use this software to, to, to basically multi-track their recordings. They're each right. individually recording their parts. Then they, they're doing the same thing for video. And then at some point someone has to, to mix it and master it and, and then sync it with the video. So those are all skills that I had no idea I would need, you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> and, right. You know. So we're using this as a time to work on those skills because we, that's, this is what skills you can work on right now really well, actually. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of an ideal time to learn it. And 
Um, hopefully things will move on in the next semester eventually so where we can get back to playing ensembles more normally and stuff. Mm -hmm. In my, my own teaching this fall, I've been able to do finally have a system where I can teach about half the lessons live and half on Zoom, mm -hmm. working with the protocols that we have at ASU. Right. And that's been helpful. And I, I actually I find it kind of humbling, actually, for most of the students. I'm the only live instruction they've had. Um, this this fall semester. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm glad to be in that position to do that, but it's still, it's kind of humbling and, and stuff too. Um, the spring semester, um, I'm actually going to be on sabbatical. I don't oh, know okay. I know that. I've, no, I've I didn't applied, know that. applied for that. I've never had a sabbatical. Uh, for those that don't know, it's like you get a, a, basically it's a semester off from teaching, but they still pay you, but you have to have a project you're doing for the sabbatical. So my project is, uh, so back in the day when I was a doctoral student, I made a natural horn working with uh, Rick Serafinoff and mm -hmm. some other projects when I was a doctoral student at IU. And effectively, I was kind of his first apprentice, although we didn't really think of it that way, but I kind of was. And I uh, also made a, a converted a, a single horn into a, a horn that pretty closely resembles a Gumpert model 19th century horn with crooks. Mm-hmm and some things and made some lead pipes and stuff. I did enough that I've got some skills, but I haven't done very much with them in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So the project is basically a horn making project. All where right. I've got several things planned. I'm gonna, first thing is definitely I'm gonna revisit the Gumpert model horn that I built. I plan to put a different valve section on it. Okay. And, and do, some, do some kind of heavy rebuilding on it. I think I can make it better. And then I've got another horn that I'm working with some a couple different horns, putting the parts together to make a copy of a Schmidt model, 19th century, a Schmidt 19th century uh, valve horn. Okay. And, uh, I'll see where it goes from there. I think that'll take me probably about half a semester and I'll see what happens from there. But it's uh, definitely, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I basically had, typically faculty does some kind of giant book. Uh -huh. or something make a recording you know i've made recordings before i thought about the giant book but i really don't have a desire to write the giant book i'm just mm -hmm. kind of like no no, <laughs> giant, no giant book for john erickson just write small books um uh, but um uh, so that's so i want to do something hands-on mm -hmm. so it's a it's a very hands-on project um so it's kind of looking back it's but but I, i'm kind of excited about it just from, from going and really, I'm very excited about it, actually. It just sounds like a lot of fun, especially after COVID, to just go out in the garage and be like soldering things and yeah, cutting yeah. tubing and bigging out, taking out dents and figuring out this design and stuff. It's going to be really fun. Well, I hope you'll share some of that uh, through Horn Matters if you can. Yeah, yeah, I will. I will have some posts along the way. Ultimately, I have to generate a report on the project for ASU. Mm -hmm. So it makes total sense to just kind of report on it as I go. And then I've got all that materials there to, to put into my report for ASU. That's awesome. Hey, if you get really good, you know, there could be the Ericsson model natural horn at some point. Could, who knows? Yeah. I, I think the thing that's hard, like I, I made lead pipes with Rick Serafina, but that is just like, I don't have enough tools to do that. I would, there's a point where I really would have to tool up a lot to do, do much beyond what, but still my basic goal is just to get my soldering feeling mm -hmm. good and comfortable again, uh, get some of the skills back and, and try to expand on those skills and just see where it goes. Who knows where it'll go? Yeah, exactly. 
that's great. And that's fantastic to hear. And uh, maybe, maybe now this is a good stopping point, but I just want to thank you again, John, for, for being my guest today on the Horn Call podcast and good luck with everything. And uh, especially good luck with the sabbatical project. Well, thank you. And good luck to you as well.